Hello, and welcome to this first March edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Catherine O'Flynn, who won the Costa First Novel Award in 2007 with her book, What Was Lost? It also made it onto the list for several other major prizes and has been translated into more than two dozen languages. The book centres around the Green Oaks Shopping Centre, a fictional place which seems to have landed like a spaceship in an imagined Birmingham, amid the desolation of post-industrial decay. It's here that Kate Meany hangs around with her toy monkey Mickey, taking careful notes on potential bank robbers. And it's here that 20 years after Kate disappears without trace, that a security guard sees a girl on his monitor screen long after the centre has closed for the night. The first thing I asked Catherine about was the importance of Birmingham in her writing. I suppose um, the city is, does play quite a large part in my imagination, really. I suppose it's because when, where I grew up, the area I grew up in, called Neutrals, is an area that underwent an awful lot of changes. You know, when I was growing up there, it was very, very barren and post-industrial. And then shortly after I moved away, it began to be redeveloped in all kinds of, to me at least, surprising ways. You know, there became a very large casino and leisure development there called Star City and enormous Chinese supermarket and um, kind of almost a mini Chinatown. I had this very strong sense of going back there and it almost being completely erased. And to some extent, a greater or lesser extent, that's true of lots of parts of Birmingham as well. You know, Birmingham's always reinventing itself and always has these kind of slightly utopian ideas about being the city of the future. On one hand, you know, I kind of I kind of hate that to some extent, but on the other hand, I, I love it and I love the kind of, I suppose I quite like the, the melancholy aspects of it, the bits where those experiments have gone a little bit wrong and you find the the fragments of those those traces of, of past dreams that didn't quite come off. As you walk around it or drive around it, you're constantly aware of, of the past layers underneath and, you know, get, get little glimpses of them. In the novel, you've got two separate timelines. You've got the 1984 story and you've got the 2003 story. I was struck by the fact that 1984 isn't a golden age. Already you can see, I mean, the sense of sort of community and local shops and things, things are already beginning to sort of fragment and, and, and break apart. I'm not sure why why I picked 84. I mean, I suppose it was... Um, it was a little bit later than I, than I would have been the age of Kate. I was I was probably about that age, sort of the end of the seventies. It was certainly a time in which that landscape, the landscape I wanted to describe, would would still have been the case in large parts of the country and certainly in Birmingham. That uh, the kind of post-industrial, and it was also the time when the first big out-of-town shopping centres were just appearing. And I kind of liked that that crossover and that you know these shopping centres were often appearing in areas that had just had, you know, their major industry or big factories or whatever closed down. And the incongruity of these things landing in these quite depressed neighbourhoods was something that interested me. And I think that was that was that was kind of unique to that time. That was just ha- starting to happen then. You mentioned landing and you compare the, the Green Oaks shopping centre in the book to a spacecraft or a space station, which kind of conveys that sense of it being alien and yet just having having arrived there. Was the shopping centre one of the first things around which this this whole sort of imaginative world coalesced? Yeah, it, it, it very much did. I mean, I think the book wouldn't have happened at all had it not been, you know, for the fact that I was working in a shopping centre and, and just by working there found myself more and more fascinated by and obsessed by the place. 
And so that was totally the start of the book, the, the start of, you know, at that point I didn't think it was a book or a novel, but what it was was just something I really wanted to write about. And I really, the reason why I was writing or the reason why I do write is that I tr- want to try and get to the bottom of something that interests me, you know, or fascinates me. And I really wanted to do that with that shopping centre, try and work out what it was that made me uh, go on about it so much to people. And what was it that drew you to it? I think it was um, the the contrasts there, the contrast that I saw, you know, between, you know, really quite quite trite observations, really, but the 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 contrast between the way it would be in the daytime, where it was always completely packed. It never seemed to have quiet days, full of people just milling about, and at night when I'd be locking up the store, and it'd be I'd find it very eerie at night when it was empty, and you're aware of the constant sort of surveillance by the cameras. The contrast between the way it was for shoppers and the way it was for staff, the different, the two different sides to the centre, and the contrast between what it was as I knew it and, and what it had been in the past. You know, it had been this this steel foundry, and so all, all these things I think just added up to just create a really strange atmosphere there. Maybe I could ask you at this point to read a short extract where Kurt, the security guard, is patrolling the service corridors, which the public never sees as the the, the hidden side of the shopping centre. Kurt was slowly patrolling through the parallel, unseen universe of the service corridors. Mile upon mile of pipes, wires, ventilator shafts, fuse cupboards, security barriers, fire hoses. Like an illuminated cave network, narrow passages would abruptly bloom into cavernous loading bays, and other lanes would lead nowhere. Everything glowed grey. Everything smelled of hot dust. He would wander for hours in a trance, following no particular route, going through the motions of checking every door handle. Sometimes he'd stop and try and sense where he was in relation to the centre, but he rarely came close. He liked to be lost, tangled, somewhere in the knotted orbit of the mall. Did it take a lot of work to get the shopping centre in focus? Because what I liked about it was the way... It was a sort of ambiguous presence. It could be both negative. At some points, it's almost a malevolent. It's almost endowed with consciousness. And other times, it's kind of like this this bubble where people's dreams sort of circulate. And as you said, it's got it's got this sort of public shiny face, and it's got its sort of hidden piping. And how, how hard was it to kind of get the right sort of focus to your lens? By the time I came to writing it, it it wasn't so hard because I'd I'd been thinking about it for maybe two or three years since I'd, I'd, I'd stopped working in the centre and I'd done other things but all that time I'd been kind of thinking about it and, and probably to some extent I don't know I suppose to some extent is exaggerating it as well in my mind you know sort of um, exacerbating that the malevolence and and so on and when I actually did come to write it I was living in in Barcelona and I think that as well helped by being somewhere so far removed from that world that it became even more I suppose to some extent crystallised, but also um, exaggerated and extreme in my mind. You know, it seemed incredibly dark from, from the sunlight of where I was. It exerts this powerful sort of magnetic attraction almost, doesn't it? And all the characters, they're all kind of drawn to it for various reasons, and all those stories kind of intersect through it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's just the, the, the nature of those places that um, they somehow become bigger than you know the sum of their parts and they do exert a gravitational pull obviously on on shoppers but also on on staff as well I mean I guess in the way that so many of us get sucked into jobs we don't really want to be in and it's very hard to uh, to get out and the thing you know I'd always 
I'd always notice about there and it's you know it's it's an obvious thing really but obviously as you're working there and you might be you know to a varying degree miserable or not but you'd end up obviously you'd end up spending your lunch time there so you'd go to all the cafes there and you'd your kind of whole world almost shrunk down to uh the dimensions of the shopping center yeah. one of the words that i picked up on in, in the reviews i think it was in the guardian it described it as polyphonic and i like the fact that it has it has all these voices in it one of the things I liked best was these interior monologues that you put at the end of some chapters where is somebody in the shopping centre and you sort of, it's like a privileged insight into their thoughts. I think some of those were the very first things I wrote when I was first trying to pin down what it was about the centre that got to me. I know that some of those were the first things I wrote and I didn't really know where they were going. And it was a far more gradual process really that I, I developed the idea of the story. I don't know. They were just always very important to me. You know, not um, not everyone kind of could see could see the point of them or therefore. But to me, they were very important. I suppose just in that way of um, suggesting that kind of constant static in the centre, mm. and uh, and the, the you know the range of people there and the range of desires and desperation that there was there. Tell me about the the character of Kate Meany. She's really central to the whole plot of the book. She's the little girl who disappears and sets in, sets in motion lots of the, the later, later events. Where did, where did she come from in your imagination? Well, initially, the starting point for, for Kate was, you know, this, this what I'm sure now is, is an apocryphal tale that um, uh, a security guard that I worked with told me one day about um, a child being seen on the CCTV monitors in the middle of the night and this, this child being nowhere to be, to be found. That was the first point at which, you know, all these vague thoughts I'd had about the shopping centre, there was something about that image that captured a lot of the things I'd been thinking, you know, in a very vague way about, I suppose, about the malevolence of the centre and the way in which lots of people seemed lost there. And so I started wondering, you know, well, who, who, might, who, who was that child? Who could that child be? And why did a security guard imagine he saw a child that wasn't there? The more, I suppose, I, I knew... Around that time, I knew that if I was going to write about characters working in the shopping centre and, and, and the shoppers in the shopping centre, there was an extent to which they were lost. And I liked the idea of having a child who was very much the opposite of that, who was um, incredibly um, focused and had all kinds of direction and energy. And so Kate was, I suppose, came from all those kind of things. And then I drew as well, you know, from my own idealised, I think, memories of, of myself when I was a child and just that, that sense of, um, you know, an almost comic sense of purpose. I wondered if I could ask you to read another little section from the book where Kate is doing a paper round in order to do some investigating and she visits a, a block of flats and you describe how she goes down through the block of flats. Yeah, sure. Mr Palmer had arranged the papers so that Kate would start at the top of the block and work her way down the stairs to each floor. Kate pressed the button for the lift, and soon the little black window turned to a dim yellow and the door opened. The lift wasn't like the shiny glass lifts at Green Oaks. It was battered metal inside and covered with names and words. Kate was disappointed. She remembered a children's programme she used to watch with her dad when she was very young. A girl lived in a block of flats with her pet mouse and dog. Every day she'd get in the lift and the mouse would jump on the dog's nose to press the button for the right floor. Kate loved that. She used to wish she lived in a block of flats with a lift. But now, as she tried to keep her feet out of the puddle in the corner and looked at the cigarette burns on the lift buttons, she thought maybe the girl wasn't so lucky after all. 
She worked her way down each of the block's 20 floors and she didn't see a single living thing. The clues she could gather about the people who lived there were limited to the waft of food smells and TV sounds that issued from each letterbox as she lifted it. No one put flowers or gnomes outside their front doors here. No one seemed to use their front doors at all. She wondered if they ever left their big cuboid tower or if they spent their day waiting for deliveries from trades like Kate. She imagined people picking up the newspapers she dropped through their doors, reading about a world they never visited. For the first time it occurred to her that her classmates had been right, except it wasn't just one ghost, but many, one in every flat, floating through the walls, communicating only through the strange words and symbols they left in the lift. Thank you. There are obviously characters in the book who are literally lost. They've disappeared, they're gone. But there are also characters who've lost a part of themselves or lost a purpose. And there's a, there's a, lot, yeah. a lot of additional lostness. I mean, there's Kurt's father who's had a, a brain hemorrhage and yeah. is sort of immobilised. There's Mrs Finnegan, the, the school teacher, who's kind of lost it in, an, in another sense, you know, yeah. and so obviously she sort of hates the children. And this rather sort of semi-derelict landscape where there are packs of dogs roaming around. This is the, so the lostness kind of permeates yeah. much further than just the, the missing child. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's very true. I, don't, I, I, you know, when I think about the book, I'm not sure if I thought this when I started to write it, but when I think about it now, it, it, you know, it is about loss, and it's about the loss of, you know, loss of landscape, that that industrial, post-industrial landscape, and the loss of of direction in life, as well as the loss of other people and the loss of, you know, a toy monkey. It's about all those kind of of losses. You know, the, when I say that, it makes the title sound particularly trite. And, you know, that's it's very much does what it says on the tin. It's about what was lost. Well, I mean, was that was that something when you when you were you sort of talking about when you were sort of young and in, in, in the eighties? Was your sense very different of the landscape you're in? Was it just a sort of childhood world that you accepted, or did you sense that things were changing and things were were actually being lost around you? I think probably when I was a child, I wasn't that conscious of of the loss of it you know that it was i suppose looking back I, it's obvious that you know a, a landscape where which has all been demolished is is a landscape in flux but when you're a child i suppose you don't realize these things and you think that's just the way that the landscape is around you as those gaps around where i lived filled in gradually over the years and when i moved away much more development went on i think it was a very sudden and profound sense of loss you know that i went back you know in the course of you know a year or so and everything had changed and you know I think that's kind of really impacted on me so I mean it's not a very it's not a very terrible thing to happen to anyone I don't think it's terribly tragic but it just it had a very big impact on me in terms of that how disorienting it is to lose a whole landscape and and I suppose also it really increased a sense of nostalgia for the past and in, sort of added to the sense of melancholy I think I had felt as a child I think I'd always felt that those areas the empty factories and the abandoned areas were were kind of melancholy and that seemed almost more exaggerated by their absence maybe that's a good cue for you to read a final extract where Kurt is exploring the factory which is now derelict where his father used to work before then Kurt had spent his truant days wandering through the silent remnants of industry that surrounded his estate the gas holders of the old gas works, the cooling towers, the empty factories, the strange coloured pools, the black brick huts, the canal, the embankment without a railway line. Some of the factories were demolished, some only half so. 
the cooling towers, too dangerous to blow up, were waiting to be dismantled brick by brick. These were the places where Kurt's father and the other men from the estate had grown up and worked. Their absence imbued the landscape with the melancholy that Kurt was drawn to. He would wander through the slow, silent afternoons, never seeing anyone else among the weeds and the bricks. He would climb through a window or a hole in a wall and find another vast cement plateau littered with rusting metal offcuts and mysterious extruded shapes that he'd cram in his pockets. He revelled in the spaces, made dens in their corners and angles. He loved the sand metal coils of wire would make when the wind blew over them, loved the way the air smelled of ammonia, loved how he felt he was the last person alive on earth, shouting strange words at the peeling walls. Sometimes he might have to throw stones at a mean-looking dog, but that was all. In the yard of one old factory on Long Acre, there was a square hole in the concreted ground. A rusted metal ladder fixed to the side of the hole led down to darkness. Kurt spent a lot of time looking into the hole, wanting to descend, but needing to see that nothing bad was down there first. He'd lie on the ground above the hole and peer into the blackness, waiting for shapes to emerge. Sometimes a shift in the sun would send light further down the shaft, but he could never see where the ladder ended. He wondered if it was a bomb shelter, or somewhere to store dangerous chemicals, or the place where lazy workers were sent. He wondered if there was treasure down there. There's another passage which stuck in my mind, which I really liked, where Kate is on a climbing frame and you talk about the noise of wind blowing through the bolt holes in the frame. And it seemed to me that you are attracted to and can find beauty in dereliction and decay and and so on. Yeah, that's true. It's another sad consequence of uh, of my childhood that, um, you know, I suppose it's the the cliches, people lamenting the loss of their trees and beautiful greenery in there, whereas I really lament the loss of... um, those kind of barren landscapes and and yeah even you know where, where I grew up it was you know on the edge of, of a large council estate and so I spent a lot of my youth playing around in these kind of windswept quadrangles and those kind of man-made hills you'd often get in the, in these places and they were always incredibly windswept I suppose because of the, the blocks of flats you'd get these fierce winds whipping around them and all kinds of weird little eddies of litter but I think as a child you know I loved that I thought it was very exciting and very modern and uh, quite futuristic and that combined with the empty spaces and the empty factories to me it was an incredibly exciting and um, mysterious environment to grow up in and yeah, so I've got this um, this kind of slightly perverted fondness for all the things that people normally consider to be incredibly ugly. Now, before I ask you a big question about sort of morality and good and evil, let me ask you a question about waste disposal. Because one of the bits which I laughed out loud at was the passage where you described Eric and Tone, who managed the shopping centre's waste disposal. <laughs> Were there a real Eric and Tone? No, sadly, sadly, there was never an Eric and Tone. It would have it would have enhanced my enjoyment greatly if there if there had been. But there were always incredibly arcane and shifting rules about what to do with waste, you know, in in the shopping centre that came down just, you know, in in uh, memos. And it just used to always baffle me that, you know, I'd never, ever get it right, whatever I did. It was like, no, that wasn't going in that container. This week it goes in this container. And I could see no logic to which things were being mixed with it. So I, I, I like to imagine that there was just, you know, a couple of people as capricious as Eric and Tone just maintaining this little universe somewhere. It, it seemed to me at one point that it, it could all become very sort of serious and metaphysical and sort of actual evil could be embodied within this shopping centre. And yet, without giving too much away, 
there's something really quite redemptive at the end, and you you finish the book, I think, feeling quite positive about your characters and their their potential. And I wondered, was that instinctive the way you handled that, or did you? How conscious were you of the way in which the potential for goodness and evil were embodied within the book? I think my tendency, my natural tendency, was always perhaps to make it a little darker, and I didn't. I didn't really want to. Um, I didn't want to suggest that evil was embodied in the shopping centre, even if even if certain of the characters might have thought that. I, di- I didn't think that, but I think it was only it, it wasn't in the initial draft the ending was kind of was bleaker really than it than it ended up being i mean it was always implied i suppose it wasn't that it was bleaker it was just that it was far it was it was clear in my mind that there was there was redemption for for the characters but perhaps I'd, i sort of hadn't really spelled that out too much in the book it was much more implied and so in a later draft i kind of made that a little clearer and uh, and drew that out a little more but yeah i mean i think it was it was important to me to have some sense of redemption at the end of it and not just to be this kind of bleak or oh, everything's, you know, awful and we're all, uh, we're all doomed, you know, because ultimately, you know, that idea of the the problem for a lot of the characters or some of the characters is that they've, you know, they've lost their way in their lives. And and I do think that's, you know, something that happens to, to many of us and and I do think it's reversible and, you know, it's not uh, it's not this, this tale of terminal decline. I think you can kind of lose your way sometimes and, and then find it again and think what was I doing you know there for two years or whatever something which I know about you is that it was difficult to get the book published in the first place and then that was followed when, it, when you did find a publisher it was followed by this incredible success and awards and lots and lots of translations and so on I wondered presumably that surprised you but what what do you think people were responding to in the book that's made it such a success mm, I don't know really um I mean, yes, it has surprised me, and I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I guess people reacted far more than than I would ever have anticipated to the character of Kate, and something about something about her. One of the things I wanted to do when I was writing it was was to have a a real child character, a kind of three dimensional child character, and not just a child who was. As can often be in the case, books just a symbol of innocence or, or a victim or, or whatever. And so I, t- I tried hard to make Kate, you know, you know, more vivid really than the adults. And perhaps some people responded to that. Having had the success of your first novel, did that create difficulties in sitting down to write a second? I think it's been a mixed thing, really, because on the one hand, you know, when I wrote that novel, I, I didn't have any history of being a writer. I hadn't written anything before. I didn't really expect to get it published and and I don't think I, it ever occurred to me that I would then go on and write other things. I, just, I wanted to tell that story. And so then, yeah, it came out and, you know, it's had all this luck. And and it's a, it's a, a double-edged thing, I guess, because on the one hand, yes, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying and daunting because you think, God, you know, whatever I do ever again would be terribly disappointing. But on the other hand, I think, well... It's very encouraging because I probably would never have done any. You know, I don't think I'd ever have considered writing again because I'm such a, you know, despite the kind of this slightly weird image of me of being determined and dogged in the face of rejection, I, I see myself as a real quitter. And um, I think um, had had the first book sunk with that trace, or had had what was lost sunk with that trace, 
I'd have just thought, well, there you go. That was that was that. I'd probably have carried on writing little things just for myself, but I wouldn't have ever thought about embarking on something serious or, or as big as a novel again. And so it's yeah, it's been a, a double thing that it's it's kind of urged me on and also terrified me at the same time. <laughs> so what was it that kept you going with what was lost then? Because you're clearly not a quitter, if you because you got you you did you did come through and you did finish it and um, it has been a success. So what, what what was it that sort of pushed you forward with that? I think in terms of pushing me forward with the writing was two things. One was that I did really want to tell the story. I was kind of quite driven to to get to the bottom of it and and to to get to the end of that of that narrative. And the second thing was that I was incredibly bored. You know, I was living, I'd moved to Spain and had lots of time on my hands. I had sort of, you know, I had the luxury of a good few months without work. And so, you know, it was kind of a sense of, well, I need to do something constructive with this time. So I think that's how I got to the end of it, which was something I'd never expected to do. And then in terms of getting published, I knew that that was, you know, a chance in a million. And I knew that I'd get, you know, lots of rejections because any unknown first-time author would. And, you know, sometimes when people say, oh, you're rejected by 15 agents or whatever, and it sounds like I'm constantly... But really, that was just one batch of, you know, so I'm, not, I'm always very keen to downplay that that kind of level of doggedness because I think, well, I, I wasn't really, you know, and I think I was lucky, but um, so, yeah. So can you say anything in conclusion about the world of the second novel? Is it, a, is it also set in Birmingham? Um, yes, it is set in Birmingham. It is set in Birmingham. It, it, it's, I suppose to some extent it's, there's a large degree of Birmingham in it because it's about... The general theme of the book is it's about ageing and it's about both old people and old buildings and how we feel about them and what we want to remember and, and what we try and forget. I was talking to Catherine O'Flynn about her debut novel, What Was Lost, which is available now in paperback. If you'd like to subscribe to Podularity, it's easy and free, and it means you'll never miss another episode. Simply go to iTunes and type Podularity into the search box. My guest on the next programme is medical historian Louise Foxcroft. I'll be talking to her about a new cultural history of the menopause and asking her why we find it so hard to talk about. I hope you'll join me then. For now, thank you for listening and goodbye.